Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome back to Malicious Life, in collaboration with CyberResolve. Two episodes ago, Patrick Wardle of Jemf described Tutok, one of the most clever hacks ever designed. Last episode, Bill Marzak from Citizen Lab identified some of the powerful people behind that app. The fact that Totok came out of the United Arab Emirates is no surprise. In recent years, the UAE has deployed some of the most sophisticated mobile device exploits ever seen. They've emerged as one of the world's leading superpowers in mobile hacking, and not by accident. They got a lot of help from one country in particular. Today's episode, the third and final iteration of this mini-series we're doing, is about the UAE. But it's really about the Americans. My name is Chris Bing. I'm a cybersecurity reporter with Reuters in Washington, D.C., and I cover nation-state hacking. Last year, Chris Bing, in collaboration with his investigative partner, Joel Schechtman, published a story that rewrote the narrative on international government surveillance. They interviewed more than a dozen former U.S. intelligence operatives who all shared one dirty secret. Only one of those former operatives agreed to be identified for the story. Her name is Laurie Stroud, and she's one of the most interesting characters you'll ever find in cybersecurity. She's middle-aged, with blonde hair and very dark brown eyes. Laurie worked at the NSA. She originally joined the military out of college, and after a number of years at NSA Hawaii, became a Booz Allen contractor. Bose Ellen Hamilton is a consulting firm, whatever that means, whose business is nearly 100% comprised of government intelligence contracts. If you know about the military-industrial complex, you can think of Bose Ellen as being part of a kind of military intelligence complex. They are an extension of the CIA, NSA, and so on. Laurie Stroud was one of their talented cyber experts who just happened to make one very ill-informed decision, through little fault of her own. Everything was fine, or so it seemed. She had a comfortable job based out of Hawaii, which isn't such a bad place to have to live in. But early in 2013, she made a hiring recommendation to her superiors. The candidate in question was a Dell technician who'd already been working in the building for some time. He was a young guy, thin, pretty pale, glasses, very well-spoken and cool in demeanor. You might have heard of him, actually. She was part of the team at NSA Hawaii that employed Edward Snowden directly before the Snowden leaks and Snowden disclosures. Bose and the NSA approved Snowden to join Laurie's team. Two months later, he fled the country. Which left Laurie in the awkward position of, you know, being vilified by her entire community. Snowden being part of her team and her being involved in his hiring at NSA Hawaii ultimately caused many of her colleagues 
to be fired or simply pushed out or reassigned from NSA Hawaii. So what do you do now if you're Lori Strapp? Down and out because of a terrible decision nobody on earth could have predicted. No longer welcome in the world you've dedicated your career to. You could, I don't know, open a bakery or something. But Lori wouldn't have to learn how to make banana bread in the end. Just as she hit rock bottom, opportunity struck. She had spoken to a colleague of hers, and he described this kind of exciting new career path that she could take that would pay very well, that would allow her to directly transfer her skills from the NSA. At a time when nobody else was interested, Mark Bayer, a widely respected network operations expert, was reaching out to personally recruit her. Some of the job's specifics were fuzzy, but he was charismatic, trusted, and sported an impressive resume. He'd formerly worked for the NSA's Elite Tailored Access Operations Team, also known as Equation Group. There's a certain level of comfort and trustworthiness that you get when you're offered a job somewhere and you know someone that's already working in that environment. It just gives you maybe that little extra that's going to push you over the line and say, yes, I'm willing to take this job, although maybe I don't have all the details for what it's going to exactly involve. In the high-stakes, secretive world of government cyber ops, it's quite common to have sensitive information withheld until you're actually hired. After all, governments can't just give away what they're doing to any candidate who walks in the door. So Lori only had the general outline of what she was in for. But even that seemed almost too good to believe. The job involved counterterrorism, fighting ISIS, for example. Her role would be largely similar to what she had with Bose Allen. The pay would be tantalizing, over $200,000 a year in starting salary, plus housing and other stipends. Lastly, while not quite Hawaii, she'd be relocated to the equally exciting, equally sunny city of Abu Dhabi. Lori wasn't the only person of her kind to be approached by Mark Bayer at that time. Bayer officially represented CyberPoint, an intelligence contractor founded in Baltimore, which did much of its business in the UAE specifically. And it was his relationships and his kind of charisma with former colleagues at the NSA that ultimately benefited the UAE and allowed so many former uh, NSA employees to want to move over there and to do that work. Mark Bayer facilitated the transition of dozens of CIA and NSA agents to work for the Emiratis he represented. Together, they became the elite cyber ops team called DRED, or the Development Research Exploitation Analysis Department. They were also referred to as Project Raven. 
Lori moved to Abu Dhabi and walked in for her first day of work in May 2014. Project Raven's offices were located in a converted mansion. Not half bad, especially when you're used to the rather drab architecture of U.S. government buildings. The villa was more or less the headquarters for Project Raven. It was a uh, mansion uh, in a district near uh, a number of government buildings in Abu Dhabi where all of the equipment, the systems, the computers, the actual internet infrastructure was set up to launch hacking um, operations for Project Raven. It was designed in a way to kind of be um, stealthy. It wouldn't be housed in a government agency. It was separate from any of the government buildings. And just from the outside, it looked like a large mansion in a residential area. But it was designed and engineered entirely for different components of the team to run the hacking operations. So, for example, in one room, they ran the collection operations, and another was data filtering and siphoning, where they would take, collect, analyze, and break down the stolen data that they were taking from these hacking operations. And then it would funnel back in kind of circular uh, intelligence-gathering fashion, going back to the client and then them requesting new targets new areas of data to steal. Upon arrival, each new Raven recruit is given the rundown on what Project Raven is all about. They were told, your mission is going to be a purely cyber defense mission, helping the UAE defend its systems from foreign hacking attacks. The briefing stated that, quote, Personnel will assist with the development of defensive measures within the cybersecurity discipline. These measures may include the development and deployment of firewalls, intrusion detection systems, and other defensive measures and techniques as deemed appropriate. End quote. So that sounds simple enough, right? Cyber defense operations for the UAE government. A smaller segment of the total contractor group that was there for cyber point received a second briefing, the black briefing. And in that briefing, they were told, disregard the first briefing. Just after being told about the project and what her job was going to be, Lori was informed that everything she was just told was a lie. She was then given a second briefing. And in that briefing, they were told, disregard the first briefing. This, in fact, is a offensive cyber operation in which you will be helping collect intelligence, target individuals, and working directly with the intelligence agencies in these countries. Let's pause for a moment here. Listeners, go ahead and disregard everything I've been going on about for the past 15 minutes. In today's episode of Malicious Life, we're going to be talking about toenails. To kick off our discussion, I'm sitting in the studio today with toenail expert Nate Nelson. Hey Ron, happy to be here. You know, the thing I always tell people is that toenails really aren't as complicated as you think. You can think of them in a sense as the fingernails of the foot. 
The history of toenails dates all the way back to okay, 1947. Okay, okay, you get the idea. If you listened to 15 minutes of podcast, then all of a sudden I completely changed what I was saying. It would be weird and suspicious. Why would I do that? New Project Raven employees were given two diametrically opposed job briefings on their first day at work. The first, called the Purple Briefing, described a purely defensive operation. The second, called the Black Briefing, read in part, quote, Project Dread is, in fact, more extensive than briefed in the Purple Briefing. Dread will be the offensive operational division of NESA and will never be acknowledged to the general public. Dread focuses on the targeting and electronic exploitation of information derived from intelligence-related cyber activities. The reason that they segmented it in this way was that not all of the workforce in the UAE for this contractor was supposed to know about the second mission. And it allowed for the members of Project Raven to have a cover and a level of deniability. In other words, if anybody outside Project Raven asks about Project Raven, you give them the purple briefing. Otherwise, disregard it. This double briefing might be jarring to most people, but Laurie and her colleagues were NSA trained. I think it was there was this feeling of familiarity in the culture, in the people they were working with. In many cases, they had worked with those people previously at the NSA or in another government agency. And that allowed them to feel like everything was normal, that even though they were working for a foreign spy agency, that it was all above board because it was a, an important ally of the U.S. in the Middle East. They were helping in some way on the counterterrorism efforts that the Americans were in, that, the, that the U.S. government was interested in. The nature of Lori's work wasn't so different in the UAE as it was in the U.S., and she would be using her skills to target terrorists like Islamic State militants. Project Raven's managers often emphasized to employees and outsiders alike how they were targeting terrorist groups like ISIS. In reality, targeting terrorists allowed them to create an air of legitimacy behind which they covertly target human rights activists, political dissidents, journalists and world leaders from the UAE and around the world. Anybody seen as an enemy to the state was fair game. Your Project Raven, while it had multiple dimensions and responsibilities, including counterterrorism, the campaign against ISIS, it did not differentiate in terms of the effort of surveillance against a terrorist figure and a prominent critic or a foreign leader that was seen as a rival to the Abu Dhabi government. Speaking with Christopher Bing, Laurie recounted some of her moments of doubt. Quote, Some days it was hard to swallow, she said, like when you target a 16-year-old kid on Twitter. But it's an intelligence mission. You are an intelligence operative. I never made it personal. 
What I came away with from the conversations with Maury, as well as the dozens of other sources that we spoke with who were former U.S. intelligence and then went on to do this job, they, they were able to kind of segment their feelings on these types of targets, saying that it was more or less familiar to the job they had done at the NSA or at the CIA, that sometimes the purpose or the reasoning for a target is not entirely clear, but you do the job. It's an intelligence job where sometimes you're not going to have all the answers and you just need to kind of get past that first feeling of apprehension or guilt. If American staff had any reservations about targeting innocents, such feelings were quickly put aside. Lori began to believe in the work she was doing. She was excited about her job. In 2016, for example, Raven bought a highly valuable iMessage exploit, which allowed them to build the Karma malware. Karma became essentially the world's most effective mobile malware, able to hack any iPhone on the planet simply by sending a text with no action required from the victim. Speaking to Chris and Joel, Laurie recalled buying that exploit with fondness. It was like Christmas, she said. In 2015, control over Project Raven was transferred from CyberPoint to a local Emirati company called Dark Matter. You can think of Dark Matter as an Emirati equivalent to Bose Allen Hamilton. Some of the Americans weren't so happy with the group's new direction. Their Emirati managers were becoming more aggressive and more secretive. Americans were being left out of certain conversations and meetings. In their target databases, certain targets were labeled Emirate Eyes Only. When American staff began asking questions, they were given vague explanations. At least eight quit. Lori did not. In fact, things were going well for her. She got a promotion. As lead analyst, she was responsible for probing the potential vulnerabilities in possible new targets, email, and messaging systems. Meanwhile, word got back to the States that Raven might be targeting Americans. On a trip home in 2016 at Virginia Dulles Airport, Lori was approached by two FBI agents. They wanted to know if Raven was targeting Americans and using classified American cyber techniques. She refused to answer any questions. Things started to change one morning in spring 2017, when after finishing up her work for the day, Lori began working on a backlog of assignments belonging to one of her Emirati colleagues. Included in her colleague's database was an American passport. She complained to her superiors. They said it was collected by mistake and would be deleted from the database. But perhaps with that FBI visit in the back of her mind, her interest was now piquant. As lead analyst, she had the credentials to probe other databases otherwise reserved for Emirate eyes only. She found two American targets. A couple days later, three more, all journalists. This was something that she saw 
unacceptable. It was something that, if seen at the NSA, would be immediately reported, and uh, some sort of administrative or disciplinary action would be taken to curb that. Lori turned to the only person left whom she could trust, Mark Bayer, the charismatic NSA operative who recruited her. She told him about the Americans in the database. He asked her to forget about it. She didn't. So she was fired and escorted from the villa with her phone and passport confiscated. Lori was now unable to leave the country and almost certainly under surveillance. A prisoner of the very machine she helped create. Today's story took place in the United Arab Emirates, but as I said, it's really about the United States. Respected American officials worked for, with, or overtly or tacitly signed off on Project Raven and its actions. Americans were drawn to the UAE on promises from people like Mark Bayer, who assured that the NSA was being regularly briefed on Raven projects. It's unclear what exactly the NSA knew, but a State Department contract with CyberPoint from 2014 states that Raven would be used in, quote, surveillance analysis and collection of information from communication systems inside and outside the UAE, end quote. The goal was, quote, protection of UAE sovereignty. This language leaves a lot of room for interpretation, doesn't it? This is the very nature of modern state-level cyber intel. It's why NSA employees were so easily convinced to work for a country notorious for spying on ordinary citizens. They already were working for a country notorious for spying on ordinary citizens. The PRISM documents that revealed years of unwarranted NSA spying on innocent Americans were leaked from the same computers that Laurie Stroud used to write emails and play Tetris. All of these people came out of these agencies and it's not like they were out of government for a very long time. Often they transferred directly from NSA or CIA to Project Raven, carrying on the same mentality, thought process, techniques, uh, thinking in general, and in that way I think it was valuable because it reveals not just the individual process that they went through in, in selecting these targets, but it revealed something about their former employers and the way that that work is done here in the U.S. So what in the worst cases has resulted from UAE cyber spying? So there was a few cases that we came across that were particularly disturbing. One of the targeting of a Saudi women's rights activist who was put under surveillance using the karma tool that we talked about earlier, um, following a protest where she was trying to promote um, women's rights around driving in Saudi Arabia driving between the border of the UAE and Saudi Arabia. She was put under surveillance. She, too, is in jail right now, has been subject to torture, 
and there's no record of her being involved in any violent conduct, advocating for violence, or posing a serious security threat. Notable Raven targets included powerful Middle Eastern politicians like the Deputy Prime Minister of Turkey, Oman's Head of Foreign Affairs, and an Emir of Qatar. Rory Donaghy, a British journalist, ended up on the list because of an opinion piece he wrote for The Guardian when he was 25 years old. In it, he criticized the UAE government's human rights record. In 2016, while Laurie Stroud was a lead analyst for Project Raven, the group targeted a prominent Emirati human rights activist named Ahmed Mansour. Mansour was a high-value target, a thorn in the side of his government after spending years speaking out against them online. Mr. Mansour, as we understand it, has never posed a serious security threat or advocated for violence against anyone, including the UA government. Mansour was so important to Project Raven that they gave him a special nickname, Egret. In their pursuit of him, they managed to hack the mobile phone of the individual referred to as Purple Egret, Mansour's wife. It's a really unfortunate case because with our reporting, we drew a direct line between... American expertise, techniques, tactics, and procedures taught by the NSA, which were used by these Americans, transferred to the UAE, and then used to surveil Mr. Mansour and eventually put him in jail. Mansour was arrested and jailed in March 2017. In March 2018, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, where he remains today. He has been kept in solitary confinement and tortured. Two months after being fired, Lori was allowed to return to the United States. Just as quickly, she called those FBI agents who'd stopped her at the airport one year prior. Later, of course, she would recount her story to Reuters. Today, she made for a suitable villain to our story. But I'd like to add a caveat before we end here. Lori was just one member of a larger machine, and unlike the rest of her colleagues, she was willing to put her face and name on record. We reached out to dozens, nearly a hundred or if not more than a hundred people to talk about this activity in the UAE, and many of them had similar feelings to Lori. The mission went off the rails, that it fell into areas they weren't comfortable with, but you know, a large majority just weren't willing to speak about it. They just weren't willing to put their name to it or even speak in general because they felt like they had too much to lose, either financially or in terms of their career path. And so Lori Stroud does face the risk. Uh, she took on some risk by speaking to us, but I think what she did was important. And as a result of Lori coming forward, there has been legislation in Congress. There has been attention from Washington at the highest levels on this story. And hopefully in some way, as a result of legislation and uh, initiative in Washington, this activity won't happen as easily in the future. Today, Lori Stroud has to live in an undisclosed location. 
the UAE government, armed with the tactic, tools and talent that she provided them, is stronger and more repressive than ever. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We had some pretty interesting discussions on Twitter in the past few days following this mini-series on TOTAC and threats against mobile devices in general. Firstly, in reply to the previous episode, Twitter user TryAgainLater from the US asked the following question. I'm summarizing the thread here, so it's not word for word. He wrote, quote, this episode is as terrifying as the soft cell one. If a user denied TOTAC access to location, camera, etc., would the app comply or just ignore the instructions? Do you think it would be the same for iOS? I was wondering if it was just some flag or switch that the app could be coded to ignore at some point. Before this, I never considered how these rules are enforced, end quote. An interesting and important question. Firoze Sethna from India responded, quote, Pretty sure it wouldn't be able to ignore the instruction from Android itself, unless the device is rooted and the app went into startup mode. Must be the same on iOS, I'm guessing, although I've never used iOS. If the device is jailbroken, the app definitely could surreptitiously access the denied permissions. If your device is not jailbroken, I'm 99% sure the app wouldn't be able to disregard your explicit denial of location, camera, etc. permissions. End quote. Thanks for the help, Firoze. I'm not very familiar with iOS development, but I did write several Android apps and I agree with Firoze. I don't think an app can ignore permissions given or not given by the user. But... And here's a big but, all this is assuming the app developers are playing by the rules. As we've seen many times before, both iOS and Android have their vulnerabilities, and malicious apps can and do bypass these permissions. Note that in Totak's case, that wasn't necessary, because as we said in the episode, it's basically a generic messaging app, so assuming the users wish to send pictures, locations and such, they'll happily grant the app all the permissions it needs. In another thread, we asked you, following our recent episode on Totak, do you use an antivirus on your mobile device? Once again, the poll results were very conclusive. Only 27% of you use AV products on your devices, while 73% chose not to. That's an interesting result. If we were talking about the general public, I wouldn't be too surprised, because from my experience, not too many people are aware of the possible dangers from malicious apps. But Malicious Life listeners are probably more aware than the general public. So why aren't more people using antivirus and similar software on their devices? Some of the responders elaborated on their answers in the thread. For example, Nick Bown from London wrote, quote, Yes, I'm a big believer in defense in depth, so having an additional line of defense is always a good idea. I also fully back everything up. 
I may be overly cautious, but it's paid dividends when my phone broke and my tablet was infected by an app which was marked as safe. Damien from New Zealand added, quote, Yes, staying safe and secure is important. Surfing the web and downloading apps in today's world on your phone, you must stay protected. End quote. But, as I said, most of you don't believe in antiviruses for mobile devices. For example, jesse.py wrote, quote, Nope, I try to install only via Play Store, with the only exception being F-Droid. Oh, and I use Firefox with uBlock Origin. In my opinion, ads are more of a malware pest than the few apps that pass an App Store review. End quote. OUSAC, whose tagline on Twitter is Buzuki on Fire, added the following, quote, Most security apps don't do much, really, other than offer a VPN service or offer password management functionality. I believe policies are a way to tighten some settings, as long as it's from a trusted source. I would just stick to keeping OS and apps updated and use multi-factor authentication, end quote. I believe these two answers are fairly representative of the views I hear from many people I talk to. Keeping the device updated and downloading apps from the app stores alone, it seems, is enough for most users to feel safe. Frankly, I can't say if they're right or wrong. Defense for each user is a personal balance between fear and comfort, so I don't think there is a right or wrong answer here. I'll just add that until not too many years ago, there weren't many threats against mobile devices because mobile devices weren't so important. But nowadays, of course, mobile devices are very important, and many of us do our banking and other sensitive stuff on them. So just make sure you're not carrying any legacy thought patterns that are leftovers from a different time. That's it. Also, a big thank you to all the people who wrote in to wish me good health. That's very kind of you, but I'm happy to say I'm as healthy as an ox. Right now in Israel, anyone who was even remotely in the vicinity of a coronavirus patient has to self-quarantine in their home, which is what I and apparently the Prime Minister of Canada are doing right now. And you are getting three Malicious Life episodes in less than a week. <laughs> Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Follow us on Twitter at, at MaliciousLife or at RanLevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. And you can mail me at ran at ranlevy.com. Our website is malicious.life. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my god. CK Music.